0: Hey everyone, you'd
1: know the guest of today's flashback episode just from his laugh. Here's Seth Rogen.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris.
0: Hey Seth!
1: Hi, Anna. God, you're so sweet to do this. How you doing?
3: I'm okay. How are you doing?
1: I'm all right. Do you know what I did? I was going to ask you a bunch of other leading, more interesting questions, but my relationship with social media is pretty terrible.
3: That's okay. So I
1: just immediately looked at your Instagram page and I liked a couple of things.
3: Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm doing doing my job. (laughs) So pottery, huh? Uh
3: Uh-huh. Fuck, and
1: it's good.
3: Thank you. I'm getting better.
1: Getting better? Were you already good at it?
3: No, I started like a year and a half ago, maybe. Almost two years ago was maybe the first time I tried it, I guess. So, uh, yeah. I've gotten better in that time, for sure. Much better.
1: Seth, I went through like a period in college where I went to raves.
3: Oh, yeah? Uh (laughs) (laughs) We're coming back to pottery. Good, yeah.
1: (laughs) And I don't know how to dance. So being on ecstasy during that time... My whole thing was like, I'm just going to make pots,
3: yeah. Ah, like I'm gonna emulate the pot making.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is how like people who can't dance. That is a good introduction to dancing. Is emulate an activity that maybe you've seen others do, like baking a cake. I remember that was a like joke Michael Sarah used to do, where like. He'd do a dance where, like he put it he he made a cake put it in the oven would set a timer dance for ten minutes and then the cake would be done and he'd take it out. <laughs> Great joke. <laughs>
1: I, I, yeah, I would hope that people like would come up to me and be like, "What are you doing?" Like, I'm be like, "I'm like making pawning. a vase."
3: Yeah, amazing man but
1: nobody i don't think anybody did that
3: it was unidentifiable
1: yeah that's my <laughs> dancing skill so i haven't seen your movie but the trailer looks so fucking good
3: thank you i think it's it, it's super strange and and i think i think good
1: <laughs> would you accept a compliment of that your comedy has always been incredibly progressive thank you in terms of like a uh, oddness
3: Yes, <laughs> I would say I would take that. <laughs> yeah, I think at times we're kind of seeing almost like how how, how challenging can we make this for ourselves? <laughs> um, how like weird of an idea can we bring back to a place where it like lands with people emotionally uh, is a challenge that we like to undertake. Definitely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Seth, did you ever have like early pitches that were just too odd? We still do. When I was pitching the House Bunny, originally, my vision for the character was that she was like a meth addict.
3: (laughs) They didn't like that? Happy (laughs) Madison wasn't into that? (laughs) (laughs) You know,
1: eventually she was like, I'm not going to give another blowjob. And... (laughs) I had this vision that she would go back to like her small southern town and with an abusive father or something. And
3: You could make a really hard hitting sequel to House Buddy. That would be uh, pretty, a real total shift from the first one. <laughs> 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 no one's ever made a sequel with like really real fallout from like a comedy. You're so, you're so right. We should work
1: on that. I like it.
3: That would be great. <laughs>
1: okay, so I wanted to ask you a series of life questions. Sure, great. Okay, on what occasion do you lie?
3: Um, I don't feel a lot of obligation to tell the truth to like the press. <laughs> like usually, I'm just selling a movie. Like I and and I do not like to lie about the quality of my films. I I I in general try to make movies that I can go promote with honesty. And I I try to make films that I really like for that reason. But aside from that, I do not feel a large obligation uh, to be honest, like with my personal life and things like that to like the press basically.
1: (laughs) So like if you're involved in a project that you believe could be, you know, could have been better. It's hard. I mean, I'm speaking, of course, through myself here. Yeah. Um those moments where it's like oh you know it's it has something for everybody.
3: Yes. <laughs> I can <laughs> definitely tell you the pickle movie does not have something for everybody. <laughs> yes, I try to make and 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 it's because early on I, I, I did find myself promoting films that I really didn't like that much, and I hated it. And I then started, like, reverse engineering a lot of choices I was making just so I wouldn't have to do that. And it doesn't always mean, like, the movies are getting fantastic reviews and doing well, but if I genuinely like them and think they're good, it makes my life so much easier, you know?
1: I was promoting Scary Movie 3... I think, I don't know, one of those. But I was on The View. Yeah. At the same time, Lost in Translation was out. And I wasn't doing any press for that because I have a small role in that movie. Yeah. But a couple journalists would bring it up or whatever. And so I told the um, like the interviewing producer, well, you know, I do, I do movies like Lost in Translation so I can do my passion projects like Scary Movie. <laughs> and thank you, Seth
3: a great line <laughs> did they tell you to stop saying that
1: well on the view one of the hosts said so i read that you do
3: that you you do
1: movies like lost in translation so you can do your passion projects like scary movie what do you mean by that I was so new
0: at...
3: It's also weird when you find yourself confronted with like, oh, I have to explain the (laughs) concept of comedy to someone now, which is a weird (laughs) thing to have to be doing on television like totally. okay like conceptually there are things called jokes so you understand? Like, it's, and I found myself in that position a lot of times it's, and it's a bummer of a place to be
1: <laughs> yeah oh god yeah the marketing people got all mad at me because I ended up saying <laughs> something like well you know I'm really lucky to be a part of movies that are well reviewed and then movies that are Well, like truly, that's where I went. (laughs) Like,
3: I (laughs) I have such uh, versatile options as as a performer. (laughs) It's nice bouncing between things people like, people don't like. (laughs) Regina
1: Regina Hall was sitting next to me. I remember her just like staring at the ground,
3: like, oh God, what's what's happening? What has happened here?
1: um okay all right to the press to the press which talent would you most like to have
3: i wish i could sing because i cannot sing at all like i can maybe you know i can fake my way through it for a bar or two but i wish i like was a good singer that would be nice
1: do you think that lauren your wife would appreciate that
3: Yes, and Lauren also wishes she could sing, and we share in common the desire to sing better than we can.
1: <laughs> well, maybe after pottery, this is uh, maybe. this is the goal. Maybe,
3: maybe as we do pottery, we could <laughs> learn to sing together. <laughs>
1: um, which historical figure do you most identify with?
3: Oh man, um, I don't know. Is Albert Brooks a historical figure? Yeah. Because uh, if yeah, sure. That Albert Brooks. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he would like that. But.
1: <laughs> Will you expand on that?
3: I don't know. I just have always been a big fan of his, and uh, he he writes and he acts and he directs, and uh, and he's incredibly Jewish. So those are all reasons that I <laughs> relate heavily to Albert Brooks.
1: What's your favorite Albert Brooks movie then?
3: Oh, Defending Your Life, probably. It's
1: so great. I also
3: like Lost in America. That's also a great movie. Um, I mean, all his movies. I think I like Real People, but uh, those two specifically are fantastic. The Nest Egg, right? The Nest Egg. You can't say (laughs) Nestor Egg. It's one of the greatest (laughs) monologues in in comedy. (laughs) And Julie Haggerty's incredible. I'm a huge Julie Haggerty fan. She's so great.
1: She's so great. She's
3: so funny, yeah.
1: All right. What is the best and or worst advice you've ever been given.
3: I think it speaks to the first one is uh, be honest. (laughs) 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 That can be very good advice and also very bad advice, depending on the situation. (laughs) Have
1: you been told to like, just be yourself?
3: I have. And I've also been told that I am not representing who I truly am very well. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been told, yeah, like uh, I've been told both those things. <laughs> but wait, can you cite
1: an example from the latter?
3: Yeah, for sure. I've said things. Uh, Lauren has told me after hearing things, I've jokes I've made, things like that. She's just like, "That's not who you are." <laughs> That's that is like a dumber, more shocking version of who you are, which I appreciate. <laughs> which is sound advice. I think
1: only someone you love. And who loves you can say that
3: with <laughs> very acceptance. Much so. Yes, and have me agree with it. Uh, honestly, yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you have a favorite book or author?
3: I like Douglas Adams, and I think like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, books, uh, the first one especially, were some of my favorite books uh, growing up.
1: Were you, like those a lot. Uh, I'm not very familiar with Douglas Adams. Is that, I assume, a sci fi writer?
3: Yeah, he's like a sci fi, like, like comedic sci fi, I would say.
1: Are you a big sci-fi fan?
3: Um, I'm not a huge sci-fi fan. My dad is like a giant sci-fi fan. So I sci-fi fan is a fun <laughs> thing to say. But uh, yeah, there's two major awards for sci-fi books, the Neptune and something else. And there's like 100 books that have won both those awards throughout history. And my dad has made it his mission to read all those books. He's a huge science fiction fan, yeah. So I grew up watching a lot of science fiction stuff. I
1: love the memory of your parents. I know we've talked about this before, of your parents on set of Observe and Report.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I think they've been to every set I've ever been to.
1: (laughs) They reminded me so much of my parents.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
1: I remember, like, after takes, like, going back behind the monitors or whatever, and your parents just being like, oh, my gosh, that was so good. That was so good. That was they're very so supportive. Fun. And it would be like two thirty in the morning at that empty mall in Albuquerque, and they're just like, "Oh," and like, "Honey, do you want some hummus? You need to eat." Yeah,
3: exactly. It's very true. My mom has a phobia of starving to death, so she always has a lot of snacks on her person, um, and is always offering snacks to people because she projects her phobia onto others. But uh, yeah, I think my parents have been to every movie set I've ever. I've ever been on. Like, I think they've come, visited every time I've I filmed something, which is wonderful. I love to have them.
1: I love your parents <laughs> so
3: much. Yeah, they're great.
1: Because I think, you know, on a movie set, too, everyone's so self-involved because they have to be. Everyone's doing their job mm-hmm. or whatever. So you don't oftentimes get any feedback.
3: Yeah, very much. <laughs>
1: Normally, I wouldn't go behind the monitors for any reason. But when your parents were there on set... I totally gravitated towards them because they would just be like, oh, that was so so good.
3: (laughs) They give good feedback. (laughs) Even me, I love it. If they didn't think so, they wouldn't
2: say it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that.
0: Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
1: Okay, what's a quality you dislike in yourself?
3: Man, quite a few. I don't think I. uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm literally just going through like a laundry. I'm like, <laughs> seeing just flashes of thousands of my own personality traits are, are coming before my eyes right now. I feel like I project negative outcomes before they occur. And I do think that that is something that has probably been helpful to me at times creatively, but it's not a good trait to have in my day to day life. You know what I mean? I think it's something I developed through being very critical of my work and really trying to punch holes in things that I was doing and really trying to project, okay, what is the worst thing someone could say about this? So how do I fix that? How do I make this as good as it can be in my head? And then that trait has like spun out into like every element of my life. And I just project the worst possible outcomes for a lot of things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. What would you consider your greatest achievement?
3: Man, I don't know. Probably my marriage and relationship with my wife, honestly. It's one of my longest lasting achievements. (laughs) Um, And I'd say on like a day-to-day basis, it is, you know, it is the thing that like I get like the most regular happiness and gratification from is just, you know, being in a very good relationship with my wife who I love and respect very much and who generally loves and respects me back. (laughs) Um, And so, and it's to a lesser degree, my partnership with Evan is also a very, I think like those long lasting partnerships and relationships are things that I, like I view as being very special elements of my life. You know,
1: I'm with you very much so because I am notorious for neglecting relationship.
3: I am as well. So there's there's a few so the ones that I've kept I'm very <laughs> proud of. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I
1: adore Lauren. So you guys met at El Cid?
3: Yeah, her friend was dating a friend of mine and we met at a birthday party at El Cid. Yeah.
1: How'd that go? Like I mean I guess you guys have It was
3: good. It was <laughs> Jenny Goodwin and Whitney Cummings's joint birthday party. It was around 16 years ago, maybe 15 and a half years ago, something like that. And it was great. <laughs> there was another guy she had just been on a date with at the party who she was mostly talking about. And what's funny in retrospect is at the party, I was there with my friend, Will Riser, who was dating Lauren's friend, who had recently been diagnosed with cancer. And I, as a joke, kept <laughs> kind of, nudging him to write a movie that night. And in my head, I was like, Oh, I'll be like the funny friend of the guy with cancer. Who's kind of using the cancer to pick up girls, which I was literally doing that night. And not only was it very endearing. And I started dating Lauren will riser wrote the movie and it became 50, 50.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. And you guys have been married yeah. for how long?
3: Um, We've been married, (laughs) oh, man. I adore you, Seth. I adore you. You're the best. You are the best. I have no sense of time either.
1: How can you when you live in Los Angeles and it's sunny every day?
3: (laughs) I do have no sense of time whatsoever. We've been married (gasps) for nine years.
1: Okay. If you were forced to travel or had the choice of traveling between train or boat, let's say... Long distance. Yeah. I'll start there, and then I've got a couple follow-ups.
3: I'd go train. I don't know if I would do well on a long-term boat excursion. I think I I get seasick.
1: So on a scale of, like, 1 to 10, let's say you weren't a movie star...
3: And you—it's impossible for me to conceive of that reality, even <laughs> even for a moment. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'll try. Let's say
1: your trajectory was completely different. You were yeah. hardcore into mountain biking. And let's Mm -hmm. say you operated bike tours in Cabo San Lucas and you met like these awesome people. Maybe you were kind of crushing on a girl or whatever. Yeah. And they are all heading out to the Marquesas. Yeah.
0: Sounds
3: fun.
1: Let's say like a (laughs) 68-foot sailboat. And she wants you to go. It's going to be like a two-month journey.
3: Whoa.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it'll take like a (laughs) month to get there, they think.
3: Do they have weed?
1: Yeah. They have a lot of weed.
3: Then I would go. Yeah, you would go I mean, then, then then, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: how would you do as like a team member
3: on the boat? I would do my best. i would I would probably be rendered pretty useless because, like i, w- I there's a real danger I would be vomiting the entire time. Like, well, but with uh, the
1: weed, maybe yeah. that suppresses. Maybe it would
3: help. Uh, maybe I'd get used to it. Maybe I'd get my sea legs. I would try. How <laughs> helpful would you be? Like, would you see yourself sort of as the cook or
1: are you like operating the main set? I know nothing about this stuff.
3: Would I be hoisting, hoisting the mizzenmast? Yeah. I, 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 I could be a cook type uh, person. I think, yeah, that would be. <laughs> I could I could chop. Yeah, I, I could, I could. I'll provide food for the crew. I think would be my role on the ship, or swab the deck. I, I've always wanted to swab things.
1: So you're not exactly you're not exactly MVP, but you're somewhere in there. I'm
3: pulling my own weight, but I'm not making life that much easier for everybody.
1: I don't know. You could be, <laughs> you know, with your singing we'll ability. We'll see how they feel
3: about me. Exactly, with my magic singability that this version of me has. <laughs>
1: Do you play any instruments?
3: No. Um I played the saxophone when I was very young, but I have I I have not picked one up since I was eleven years old. Or That's a
1: rad visual.
3: Not that cool an instrument for an eleven year old to play.
1: <laughs> I don't know.
3: I could play Love Me Tender by Elvis, I remember <laughs> I'd play that. <laughs> <Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do>. <laughs> That was
1: my hit. <laughs> okay, we're gonna get on to uh, deal breakers. Cool. And this is a special deal breakers tailored for you. Normally, we do dating ones, but this is uh, would you I don't date. would you smoke it?
3: Would I smoke it? I like that. okay.
1: It's four am and you're driving home from set in Shreveport. Yes, when a police officer pulls you over, he tells Whoa. you
0: <laughs>
1: he tells you that he's a big fan. And then he submits you to a sobriety test. Yeah. After you pass the test, he asks you if you want to smoke some of his moonshine weed. Would you do it?
3: No. And I know I wouldn't because I was once faced with a very similar situation in New Mexico um, where I was shooting in a very small town uh, called Estancia, I believe, on the outskirts of New Mexico. And a cop... Asked me, he came up to me, showed me a picture of like a bunch of weed plants, and he's like, "I'm growing these in my basement." Produced a joint, and was like, "Do you want to smoke this joint with me?" And I, it was one of those internal monologues where I was like, "On one hand, the story of smoking weed with a cop, I guess, is what maybe I would like to have. On the other hand, is this like the most simple sting operation in history, and I'm about to be like the dumbest motherfucker to ever get arrested on the planet." And so I said no. <laughs> so I did not do that. But I, a cop has asked me to smoke weed with him before. Yes.
1: Damn. All right. Okay.
3: <laughs> I think more than once. That was like the I most bet. explicit time. I, th- I think it's happened to me. I bet. Times, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: okay. Here we go. Michelle Obama asked you to be on her new podcast. Yeah. Before the interview, you run into Barack on the back porch getting high. Yeah. He begs you not to tell Michelle. He says she hates marijuana, and she can always tell when he's high, and she can always tell when he's lying, and then he offers you a hit. Would you smoke
3: it? Of course, yes. A thousand percent. Okay. For sure. But
1: then what if Michelle, like, comes out on the back porch, and, like, do you want to be in the middle of their...
3: I'd say it's a risk-reward thing. I would risk putting myself in the middle of that for the rewards. (laughs) To me, that's a reasonable trade-off.
1: There is something kind of great when you're in the middle of a couple fight and you kind of know that you can't be blamed for anything.
3: Oh, yeah, that's happened to me a lot of times as well. (laughs) Luckily, I have a lot of friends who are very comfortable arguing in front of me as well, so that's (laughs) very lovely.
1: (laughs) Um, okay, while doing some light renovation on your home, you discover a brown paper bag in the bathroom wall. In black handwriting, on the front, it says, don't smoke until Scott gets back. Oh, no. You open it up and find two joints. Would you smoke it?
3: No. I'd put them back in the wall. What? I would respect that.
1: But that's, <laughs> that's coming from a man who has a lot of access to weed.
3: Yeah, even if I didn't, I would still, I mean, it's two joints. Is it worth angering? Someone who took the time to do that, you probably want to stay on their good side. If they had the the complicated foresight to put weed in a wall with a note, I would say, like, in the off chance Scott comes back, it's probably not worth pissing him off for two joints. He put a lot of work into this. <laughs> Seth,
1: My partner, Michael, and I had like a little disagreement, not a disagreement by 80, but I wanted the note to say, don't smoke until Scott gets back from NOM.
3: Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I still might do it because I don't know if he means the war or just the country. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right all right <laughs> he could just be uh, like backpacking, you know <laughs> in nam Does, do, i don't think in vietnam but i don't, th- I don't think your
1: buddies are like hey may- yeah i'm gonna I'm, I'm this is great i'm gonna go backpacking around nam evan did yeah but you say vietnam don't, you, you don't say <laughs> it, it, would, it, would
3: be an odd, it would be an odd turn of phrase. I agree. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a weird, it's a weird way to, sh- to abbreviate it in, in peace times. I, I agree with that.
1: All right. All right. <laughs> all right. So it's going back in the wall.
3: Going back in the wall. All right.
1: You're stranded on the surface of Mars after a mission gone wrong. There is the tiniest hope of rescue, but the odds are against you. The only thing you have yeah. left is a little bit of weed and some lab yeah. equipment to fashion a bowl out of but you know if you strike it up and smoke it, it's going to deplete your remaining oxygen. Would you smoke it?
3: This is like my version of the Martian. (laughs) I don't know. I guess live by the sword, die by the sword is is partially where my head goes. So I think eventually I probably, maybe, eventually. It depends how bleak it looked, I would say, but maybe eventually.
1: Well, maybe there's a way, you know, we didn't even think about the idea that perhaps you could... Use it as edibles.
3: Yeah, maybe I could eat it. I, I mean, if you're on Mars, you have
1: to have some sense of ingenuity.
3: Yeah, that Matt Damon movie may, would, <laughs> made that seem very clear. Yeah, I, I feel like I could reduce it. I could vape it or something like that. Maybe I could use, yeah. There must be some way <laughs> <laughs> to both get high and live on Mars.
1: There must be some way. Of course there is a way.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there's a will, there's a way.
1: Okay, all right. So let's say you're in Pittsburgh. Shooting an American pickle. You're yeah. taking a walk in the park when a man stumbles out of the bushes. He tells you he has time traveled from the 1960s yeah. and holds out a bag of weed, kind of like this.
3: Yeah, because it's the 60s. It's a giant bag of really weak <laughs> weed, I assume. Totally, and
1: he's yeah. offering it to you, and he wants you to join him. Would you join him? Would you smoke it with him?
3: Yeah, I might. <laughs> <laughs> just in, just in case, (laughs) just in case it was real. I have said yes to smoking weed with truly debatable, you know, in truly debatable situations. Like I've been out and people have been like, do you want to hit to this joint? And I've said yes. And even afterwards, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. That was uh, (laughs) probably not. Yeah. My instinct (gasps) is to do it. Yeah.
1: I went through this stage in my life where if I was shooting on location, I truly viewed it with a study abroad carelessness.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I feel some sort of obligation. I always think back. (laughs) This is such a weird story. We were testing the movie Pineapple Express, like doing test screenings of it. And at that same time, Superbad was in theaters. So I was in like Thousand Oaks for a test screening of Pineapple Express and I was walking to the theater and in like I was walking through one of these outdoor balls and in like a little like alleyway behind the mall kind of were three teenagers smoking or it was one teenager <laughs> who was carrying a joint walking like down and he and he stopped me and he's like you're Seth Rogen and I was like yeah and he's like what are you doing here I was like I'm here to screen a movie and he's like oh my friends are right around that corner and we're about to go see super bad for the first time and we're about to smoke this joint will you come smoke it with us and i was like i wish honestly i would but i can't i just gotta go and i'm late for this thing and i walked away and i just remember and it's tattooed in my brain this sight of this 15 year old kid <laughs> holding a joint watching me walk away and he just screamed <laughs> but What's gonna believe me? And, and and I and I and I and I and I just walked away. You're the Is that like echoed? Man. And ever since then, I was like, I owe it to these. You owe it to the children. To Seth. Uh, to kind of yeah. To, I owe it to the kids. <laughs> I think of that kid. That's who I think of. <laughs> I
1: was at. I was in Louisiana in New Orleans, and I was at a grocery store and these little girls came up to me and they were like, hey, were were you in the hot chick? And I said, yeah. And I said, hey, you guys have your swimsuits on. What are you guys doing today? And they were like, we're going over to Sarah's house. It's her birthday. And one kid was like, do you want to come? And I said, yeah, yeah. So I went back to my hotel. I took a cab back to the hotel. (laughs) I went and hung out with these 12-year-olds All afternoon until their mom had to kick me out.
3: (laughs) And I bet it was fun. It was great. They
1: worshipped me. They were like, so do you know Justin Timberlake? "Uh Uh-huh. I sure do.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I once I I found myself not that long ago at like a frat house in Vermont rolling like a giant cross joint with like 30, you know, 19 and 20 year olds (laughs) crammed into a living room. And uh, yeah, it was it was a hilarious, wonderful time. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, I I don't know what it says about the—it's either sense of adventure and a compliment that I like to tell that story, like, about myself, or it could be very much perceived as, like, a weird desperation for attention and adoration, like—
3: Why do they have to be mutually exclusive? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Seth, what's it like to—I don't know if you've had to answer a lot of these kinds of questions, but to play against yourself, to play— partners with yourself in American Pickle. Uh,
3: have you ever done anything like no. that?
1: Oh, well, once. I did a short film.
3: Yeah. I really enjoyed it, honestly. Like, it was an interesting challenge. But, you know, I like acting, but it's honestly like just being an actor in a film to me is like, you know, you're working. It's kind of like not, it can be a boring job, honestly, (laughs) you know, like, and that I think is why I like to take on other things to be the writer as well, or the director as well or something. But on this, I was not the writer or the director. I was the actor and the added challenge and technical aspect of playing two roles made it like incredibly engaging for me. And it's added an element that I really liked sinking my teeth into and it was hard but it was also felt like we were doing like a magic trick and like when it worked it was like you can kind of see in the moment if it worked or not and it was really like rewarding to be able to see like oh we did it like the the trick the trick was sold you know and i i really enjoyed that yeah
1: seth would you do me a big favor uh do you mind grabbing something weird out of your house or in your room or anything and you can uh it's something, I I, whatever. I, that's all I'm leaving it as.
3: Uh, yeah, here, here.
1: yeah, what's that?
3: I don't know. It's this a weird thing. <laughs> Our
1: listeners are going to love this segment.
3: It's a weird little exactly. <laughs> this is perfect for a podcast. Yes. I won't describe it, but but you can attest to the uh, fact that it is in fact weird, right? <laughs> 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 this is the uh, perfect, <laughs> <I> think... <laughs> <laughs> like, with... <laughs> the perfect podcast segment. Yeah. Okay. Here I'm. I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it right now. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> you can hear it. <laughs> what is this thing?
1: <laughs> I don't even know if I'm creative enough to describe it in an interesting way.
3: I would describe it as two wooden feet and then a spring and then a little wooden head on top So
1: of it. it's wood. It's like a wooden bobble
3: head. It's like a wooden bobble head, kind of. Yeah, I guess like a wooden bobble head.
1: Does it have sentimental value?
3: Uh, I... Th- I think uh lauren gave it to me it's from denmark but lauren's never been to denmark so i don't know um maybe she ordered it from a website uh from denmark so yeah sentimental value
1: (laughs) it has an inexplicable joy i can kind of it does it's not unfriendly
3: Uh, i defy someone to just like a bobblehead type thing yeah conceptually bobbleheads (laughs) are are sound (laughs) so there you go
1: all right Here's some easy ones. Great. What's your favorite ice cream flavor?
3: I think uh, uh, cookies and cream. All right. With Oreo cookies, hopefully, ideally, aiming for Oreo cookies. <laughs> like the big chunks. Yeah. Briars has a good version of that.
1: What was your favorite toy as a child?
3: Man, I was really into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and G.I. Joe were probably my favorite toys.
1: Now, when boys play with toys. Yes. Like when you're playing with your G.I. Joes or Ninja Turtles, is it just sort of smashing them together?
3: No, I think mine were a little more elaborately plotted out. Um, at times, yeah, I think it was not just smashing together. I think every kid plays differently, though. I remember playing with these kids who would just smash their shit together and being like, I don't think we can play. (laughs) I like slightly more nuanced arcs with my playtime.
1: Seth, what was your first boss like?
3: My first job I ever actually had, I was paid to write jokes for a moil who's a guy who does circumcisions for Jews.
1: They're supposed to do a stand-up routine?
3: No, that was my thought as well. And I think I was 14 or 15 and I I was doing stand-up comedy and a approached me after a show and asked if I would write jokes for him for his ceremony to which I responded, "You want jokes? I've never I had never been to a circumcision, but I was like, you want jokes for this?" And he did. So he paid me to write jokes for him.
1: Seth, please tell me you remember. A couple of them.
3: I do, yeah. You do?
1: Can you tell us?
3: Well, what's funny is I remembered none of them, and then my mom ran into the guy recently. She went to a wedding, and they were, like, seated next to each other, coincidentally, and he's still a boy in Vancouver. There's not very many, because there's not a ton of Jews there. So he is still circumcising children, and he is still telling some of the jokes. (laughs) And so he had them still, and he (gasps) sent them to my mother, who sent them to me, basically. There was one about like, like this kid's going to be the only kid in preschool who can say he survived a knife fight. That was one of this. Like it, it was, they were silly jokes like that. And I remember like I questioned the, the motive behind it, but he claimed that it was like a good icebreaker to have a few jokes because everyone's nervous. God, I love
1: that. That's great. That's great. That's the best answer to that question. Yeah. Yep. All right. What's your favorite rainy day movie?
3: Oh, man. What do I find myself watching a lot? Things like Defending Your Life, I rewatch that movie pretty regularly. It's a comforting film, I find. The Big Lebowski, I also think, is a comforting film. Those types of movies.
1: What do you think makes a comforting movie?
3: I think a movie that is not too dark, (laughs) does not have themes that are too personally (laughs) triggering for the viewer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think that's what I find a comforting movie. And I, in general, I'm not saying those those are two very good movies, but I, in general, like to watch bad movies also. I think because I make movies and when I watch good movies, sometimes it makes me not relaxed. It makes me like like go into a very like worky type mind state where I'm really analyzing what's so good about it and why I suck so bad. And then sometimes when I just watch a bad movie, I'm like, it truly allows me to kind of unplug and and relax, you know?
1: So then what's your favorite bad movie?
3: I am always listening to How Did This Get Made, Paul and June and Jason's podcast, and I listen and I try to watch a lot of the movies that they watch. So I just watched Money Plane the other day because that was the latest episode of theirs, um, (laughs) which is a truly not very good movie.
1: (laughs) My son, who's, he's about to turn eight, he got me into the Meg.
3: That is a good bad movie. Deep Blue Sea is probably one of the best bad movies. Incredible. Love Deep Blue Sea. And what's funny is Evan, my partner, uh, truly loves that movie and went on, how did this get made, to defend it and, and, and genuinely likes it <laughs> and refused to speak about it poorly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, so... Remember, I I asked you, what's a a trait that you disliked in yourself? What's a trait you dislike in others?
3: Oh, man, so many. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to think of like an overarching trait I dislike in others. There's a lot of people who seem to like truly, especially now, like be proud of their ignorance. (laughs) I think that is a trait I dislike. (laughs) And I think that's different from acknowledging that you don't know things. It is not knowing things and, and pretending you do (laughs) like I'm someone who is always acknowledging how little I know and how, (laughs) you know, I dropped out of high school. I am not an incredibly well-educated person overall, you know, and, and I am someone who's always trying to recalibrate their position on things. And I'm always open to changing my stance on things. And I think I'm annoyed by people who know as little as I do, which is (laughs) a lot of people, but act as though they really know a lot. And a lot of people do that, you know. And I think as you get older, the more you realize no one knows anything.
1: I completely agree with you, but are we able to say that from a distance a bit? Because part of as I've gotten older or whatever it is, it's much easier for me to say, I don't know what that
3: means. For sure. Well, I, I'm not going to say there's two types of people, but of the many <laughs> types of people, two types are those who get older and look around and see that... The people you interact with as a kid, you were like, Oh, these people must be smart and know things. You get older and you're like, Oh, they are just pretending, like, and they don't know anything. And what they've learned is how to speak in a way that it seems like they know what they're talking about, but they really don't. Like, that's their skill, (laughs) Uh, you know. And at the same time, there are people who actually do know a lot of things about certain things. And there are certain people who know a lot of things about a lot of things, but I'm sure those same people would acknowledge that there are other things that they don't know anything about, you know. And then there are some people who, the older they get, the more they act like they know everything about everything and refuse to acknowledge that there's anything that they don't know about and take pride in that position. And I think again, as I get older, I think those people are more and more obnoxious.
1: (laughs) I'd like to think that my cement is still sort of liquid. Yeah. It could harden, but it's still slightly malleable.
3: Yeah, I think I, I think my my cement is quite malleable.
1: Yeah. Okay. How would you like to die, Seth?
3: Old, and then suddenly, <laughs> old and suddenly. <laughs> Something where it's just like I'm feeling great and old, and then I die one day. I I don't want to. I don't want a slow and steady decline. I want everything to be really, really good, and then and then just, just out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well, we can push you uh, overboard on your. Dream voyage to the Marquesas. Perfect. (laughs) When
3: I'm 120, you can push me off the boat.
1: He was an okay cook.
3: Yeah, exactly. We ate him. (laughs) And I want to be eaten.
1: (laughs) Hey, before I let you go, Seth, in one word, how would you like to be remembered?
3: Oh, man, I don't know. (laughs) I know. Uh, Fondly.
1: That's good.
3: I like that. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. All right. So,
3: uh, Lauren,
1: note that fondly. Yes,
3: exactly. Fondly.
1: <laughs> use a lot of fondlies at the eulogy.
3: Uh, uh, yeah.
1: Here lies Seth Rogan,
3: with fond memories. <laughs> with fondle memories.
1: Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite joke?
3: I remember Paul Rudd once told me a wonderful joke. Of, What's the last thing you want to hear when you're giving Willie Nelson a blowjob? I'm not Willie Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> solid, joke. Solid, joke. <laughs> solid joke. Solid joke. Solid joke. Solid joke. We did it. Hey, will
1: you let our audience know when we can see an American pickle? August
3: 6th. August 6th. 30, August 6th on HBO Max.
1: Seth, I can't thank you enough for doing this.
3: My pleasure. It's always good to see you. Yeah, and talk it's great to, you, to see you, too. virtually.
1: All right. Bye, Seth.
3: Bye. Selling a little
1: or a lot? everyone dan savage is back to help me answer your questions as i mentioned last week i've been a fan of dan since my days in edmonds washington where i used to read his column in the stranger you can hear more from dan on his podcast savage Lovecast. hi dan
4: hi how are you i'm good how are you
1: good 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 so we're gonna call chris
4: Hi, Anna. Hey, Chris. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right in these crazy times. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for calling us. I'm here with Dan Savage.
2: Hey, Dan. Hey, Chris. It's hey. an honor, dude. Thank you so much for all that you have done for our community.
4: Oh, oh, that's very sweet of you to say. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, Chris,
1: I don't know if you're going to be saying that in a few minutes, man. Dan is <laughs> like,
2: he <laughs> is. He's getting savage, huh? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Chris, will you tell us what's happening?
2: Okay. So five years ago, um, my ex broke up with me and he broke up with me because I kept coming to him, telling him that I think he's still in love with his ex and whatnot. And, you know, we were together for five years.
4: So was he doing anything that made you believe he was still in love with his ex or was it just insecurity?
2: On your part? Several things. He was distancing himself from me. One of the last times that we had uh, intercourse, it seemed like someone had just left. You know what I'm saying?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: So I threatened to tell his mom, which is why he ended things. He felt very threatened by it.
4: Wait, wait. Threatened to tell his mom what? My
2: feelings on what's going on.
4: I don't understand. Threat to tell his mom that he was still in love with his ex or threatened to tell his mom he was gay or threatened to tell his mom that the last time he fucked you, it was like not great.
2: Well, the thing is his ex was abusive to him Mm -hmm. and his mom knows that he stole, he hurt him. He, you know, did lots of bad things to him and, um, she didn't want anything to do with this guy. Mm -hmm. So considering I felt like something was going on, I felt that I needed to tell her. So he ended things mm. less than a year after we broke up. He marries the guy.
4: Damn.
2: Yeah, and in secrecy. So the mom didn't know, the friends didn't know until two years after they got married.
4: Okay, so it's at least five years ago that you got broken up. How is any of this, as sad as it is, your concern anymore?
2: It's hindering me from moving on. Mm-hmm. I think about him all the time. I blamed myself for years until we found out the truth. You know, I thought everything was my fault. I messed up something that I thought was great. And I'll date guys, but they last days, if not weeks. You know, it's 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 just hard to move on. And a big part of it is that, from what my friends are telling me, what one of the problems is, is I'm still really close to his mom. I don't have any parents. They're up upstairs you know (laughs) in heaven Mm -hmm. so she took on that role even while we were dating is when my mom passed away so she took on that role and just became my parental figure and kind of hard to let go of her considering we have so much love and now this this bond of how we were both betrayed
1: well Chris, you know how memory sharpens itself? into positive experiences or very negative experiences. And it seems like if you think about him every day, you've highly romanticized the relationship and who he is. I really empathize with the relationship with the mom. I wish that wasn't a complicating factor because it sounds like you guys won't get back together. And it sounds like Mm -hmm. you have maybe latched on like in your loneliness, especially during this insane time, To the idea of, you know, what could have been, because it was quite a while ago. Yeah. I truly believe that everyone needs to go through, it's horrible, but like a pretty solid breakup to be a full person and have their heart broken. I think that it's important for you to start to restructure what your relationship was. And it sounds like he was still in love with his ex. They have their own issues, but there's nothing that you can or should do about those things right now at all. Do you have like obsessive behaviors in terms of, I don't know, cyber stalking stuff? Like, do you follow him on Facebook? Like, are you social mediaing him? I don't even know that world um. at all.
4: Lucky <laughs> <laughs> you. Um,
2: I don't really until. They just got a divorce last week.
4: Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, like you're you're not hung up on him. He sounds like a mess.
2: Both of them are.
4: Okay, so often when people say, I got dumped four years ago and I'm just like devastated, I'm still hung up on my ex. They're not really hung up on their ex. They're hung up on or still in love with their own capacity to love someone. That it's the love that you felt for him that you miss, but not him. Mm-hmm. And by defining it for yourself as about him, it makes it harder for you to go find that with someone else because you are mixing those two things together that are two separate and distinct things. There was him and there was your ability and capacity to love, not him, someone. And that survives with you, that ability, that capacity. Because you could love him that deeply and in that way, Instead of telling yourself, I can never love anyone else like I loved him, you have to tell yourself, I can love someone else like I loved him because I did that. That's not something he did to me. He's not a chemical agent that got stirred into a beaker, and then there was this reaction. That was something I had inside me, and that I still have. Mm -hmm. He's gone. Don't link those two things him and your capacity to love together because that will make it impossible for you to love somebody else because you will have defined your capacity to love as something reactive to this particular person and it's not
1: chris how frequently do you talk to his mom
4: <laughs> i knew you were gonna ask that <laughs> um, <laughs> it's bi-weekly
2: maybe once a month
1: when was the last time you talked to her and not
2: about him um it's it's most of the time now.
1: Oh, good. Okay.
2: Like, ever since we found out that he wanted a divorce, which was last year in May, that was it. She told me they're getting a divorce. I'm like, good. You know, they're both messed up in the head and, you know, it's...
4: But you're not hoping to get back together with him now that he's divorced? No, 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 not at all. Good. Not at all. So you're not hung up on him. You're over him. Exactly. It's
2: a little hard to explain it's not that I'm measuring up people to the love we had it's more so that I don't want to get hurt again I don't it's hard for me to trust people because it was a bunch of lies that I believed it was I love you I love you I love you when really you didn't love me
4: yeah people lie that happens.
1: Yeah. And I think too, that when you have been scarred and hurt and betrayed, it is hard to open your heart up to people, especially people who know how to love you well Yeah, and in a happy way, if you're kind of trained it with chaos. So I think just make sure to remind yourself when you do meet people that aren't as dramatic as the relationship, maybe that you were used to, because people can get very addicted to the drama. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it makes it hard, I think, to just accept somebody else's love in a full, healthy way.
4: Because they conflate drama with love or with passion. Mm-hmm. How old are you? I am 34 now. Okay, so you're in the relationship for five years, your relationship for five years, and it ended five years ago. So you were very young, right? Mm. This is your first serious long term relationship, and it was a lot of drama. And so that's another thing you need to unlink, like love and drama. Like some people think that love is drama because their relationships, you know, early formative ones were very chaotic or high conflict. And then they seek that out. Or they think that if there isn't that kind of drama and conflict, there isn't passion. And that's not true. I do want to ask you something seemingly left field. Uh, How long was it between realizing you were gay and coming out of the closet?
2: Oh, I was, I guess I fully came to terms with Myself being gay at around 12 and came out around fifteen, sixteen. 16.
4: Okay, so why do we come out? Despite the fear of parental rejection, the fear of violence, the fear of mm. all the bullshit that we're going to encounter. Why? It's because, I'm just going to answer my own question, it's because <laughs> we, re- we reach a point where the pain of being closeted, the pain of living that lie is greater. We know it's greater than any pain we could encounter coming out. Mm -hmm. That the pain of coming out seems like it can't be worse, right? You're in a similar situation with this love thing where you're afraid to love again because what if you get hurt again? Eventually you'll realize the pain of denying yourself love and the pain of being alone when you do not wish to be alone. And some people do and they're not in pain and we have to recognize that there are a lot of people out there who are happy and single. But the pain for you of being alone the certain pain, the known pain, like the known pain you experience being closeted is greater. You know, it will be greater than whatever pain you might encounter loving again and getting hurt again. And you will get hurt again. You will, you will get your heart broken again. You know, it's just like it's built into the experience. Like Good news pain. with
1: Dan Savage. <laughs> it's your new podcast Dan.
4: Sorry. <laughs>
1: no, but it's true. And there is comfort. Just like a scar that you get as you go through life, you're going to accumulate more of them.
4: It's what you're signing up for. You're signing up to get your heart stomped on again. It's how you know you have one, getting it stomped on every once in a while. Yeah. And you have to embrace it. You have to embrace that pain. And and that's partly what you're signing up for is the risk of that kind of pain. But yeah. it's the risk of that kind of pain as opposed to the pain you're in now, which is concrete and certain.
1: Dan, what do you think, though, about Chris's relationship with his mom?
4: I, I think he should continue to have that relationship with his mom. If he decouples Thank like, you. love mm-hmm. from you know, this guy and can like, you know, see these two things that I've just kind of unpacked with you differently, then the relationship with the mom isn't a threat. Isn't what keeps the love for this boy alive. Right. For this mess alive.
2: I thought that the whole time, but friends and family were telling me you got to cut her.
4: Mm-mm. I think the only
1: thing that I would be concerned about is how much of your friendship with his mom revolves around, concern for the ex for the son i think i would just be aware of that and if you find yourself having these extensive conversations about him and his divorce and and the abusive ex that can you know intensify your what's already your your heartbreak and your obsession a bit with the breakup so i I would just clock that
4: i agree and i I completely agree that like if, you know, all you talk about with mom is the ex and the drama and their divorce and your time with the ex, it can keep it alive for you. But if you have a relationship with her now, that's about other shit. And if you have a honest enough relationship with her now, where if she, the ex comes up, you can say, oh, I don't really want to talk about him. It like, it just isn't good for me, and she can respect that and change the fucking subject, then you can continue to to be friends. I think it's smart. You know, so many divorces and broken families and blended families. I, I, I just feel it's unnecessarily, you know, spreading the pain around. You know, if you divorce somebody, but they had a good relationship with your family, you can't demand that your family cut that person out of their lives. Yeah. They had a connection that, that they established for you and because of you and you're not in charge of their emotional lives and their connections and their friendships. And they, if they want to continue to see your ex, if the ex wasn't abusive, if there isn't a really good reason why your family needs to cut that person off in deference and loyalty to you, You know, if it was a low-conflict relationship and an amicable divorce or an amicable parting, I think it's better for people to stay in each other's lives than to not.
2: Yeah.
1: And Chris, I wish I could tell you to, like, get back on that horse or whatever. It's such a crazy time right now, which is also something to be recognized.
4: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I wish there was an easy fix to your sense of guardedness.
4: But instead of telling yourself, I can't do this because I'm afraid of getting hurt, tell yourself, I am going to get hurt. (laughs) And I'm going to get hurt worse if I don't do this.
1: Yeah, Chris, thank you for sharing.
4: Thank you so much, Anna, and thank you, Dan. You're
2: welcome. Good luck. Yeah. Thank you, guys.
1: Bye, Chris. Bye-bye. Dan, thank you so much for doing this. I think you are way better at it than I am. (laughs) I really appreciate it.
4: Uh, Anytime. Bye.